Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for more information about our work. You can send along an email to me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com, or you can feel free to use our contact form on the website. You can also find out about the work of CFS Financial. CFS Financial is a company we started 10 years ago that works primarily with nonprofits, but some for-profit companies across the United States doing negotiation of debt, uh, funding of new projects, uh, think large commercial real estate projects in the $10 million and up category. We don't do any personal financial consulting at all. This is all uh, nonprofits and uh, that we focus on. Uh, primarily Christian organizations, primarily Christian schools, some churches, some parachurch ministries, and some non-Christian organizations from time to time. We do all things financial, ranging from strategic planning to uh, debt negotiation to funding new projects to uh, financial advisory services for corporations. We work on things like value proposition, on board governance and the like. The success of the company over the last 10 years has been overwhelming. I've written a book about this, uh, this success. Uh, really, it's about the common threads that I have found among nonprofit organizations, specifically Christian nonprofits, even more specifically Christian schools. And that book is called The Financial Rescue Plan for Nonprofits. You can find it on Amazon. Well, Thank you for coming back this week for more Relentless Truth. It is a peculiar week to be candid. I'm going to switch gears on our normal pattern that we've we've been in here for a bit, and I'm going to talk about a bank failure. I record these episodes a few weeks in advance of their release to you, because Josh Brown and his folks at his productions do a great job uh, producing these uh, and editing these audio files. And so these episodes are sent to Josh, and then uh, three or four weeks later, they're, they're released through, uh, through a process, released once a week, usually on Saturdays, you might have noticed. And if you're a subscriber, you probably get your new episode on uh, somewhere between Saturday and Monday of each week. Well, this week, Silicon Valley Bank has failed. And that is, I want to talk about that today. And and in this volatile environment, I'm kind of holding my breath, as you might be wondering what in the world's going to happen next. So I, I think I can maybe shed some light on this, utilizing my 30 years or so of banking experience. And having been part of three bank startups, I can, uh, in capitalizing them and dealing with ratio analysis and regulators and all the rest, I can perhaps uh, provide a little bit of clarity. But most importantly, I want to help you, the listener, 
know uh, not really how to feel about this because we all react differently, don't we, to this kind of news, this sort of upheaval. And so I can't tell you how to feel about it, but I think I can give you some information that that just might be helpful. So I'm going to dive right in and talk about this this bank, this $200 billion bank that is in the top 20 of U.S. banks in terms of size measured um, uh, by most metrics. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you to start with that, that they are a Silicon Valley bank. They are appropriately named. They apparently started sometime in the 80s. The, the idea was birthed, let's say it that way, for this particular bank over a poker game of some sort among two individuals who I won't name, but you can you can find their names, and they they apparently in 1983ish I think decided that it would be a good idea to have a to start a Silicon Valley bank. Now I'm in Florida, and Florida banking is very similar to banking in most states. In other words, most states in the United States have a very similar ways to start banks, and that has morphed. Uh, over the years, as you might imagine. And by that, I mean, it, it has gone from lax to less lax to stringent to more stringent to hypervigilant over my career. And, and now with the failure of this particular bank, which is peculiar for several reasons, this failure has caused finger pointing. And so now the Federal Reserve and probably the FDIC secondarily and probably the state of California's equivalent of the Office of Financial Regulation. Not sure what they're called there, but but you have at least those three governing bodies who are responsible for, in banking terms, what we call safety and soundness, the safety and soundness of this institution. Now, safety and soundness is not the only thing a bank has to care about. You know, this is a publicly traded bank. They, they, their stock was held, is held, such as it is, as worthless as it is today, um, by individuals who, and, and it was traded on NASDAQ, on the NASDAQ exchange, NASDAQ stock exchange, which had its origins by Bernie Madoff, curiously. It was a pink sheet thing back in the day, back in the 80s. And now uh, NASDAQ is widely traded. You probably, if you have a stock app on your phone, on your, on your iPhone or smartphone, you probably track the NASDAQ, the index, to, and you probably think of that as being indicative of the stock market at large, and it sort of is now. So this bank was publicly traded, was started as a NASDAQ stock, and they had, uh, as of December of last year, 2022, $209 billion in assets, about $175 billion in deposits. A bank's assets, just to say it simply, are their loan portfolio primarily. Banks own you know, some branches and some stuff, but, but the primary assets of every bank in this country is its loan portfolio. And that's kind of backwards, isn't it? Maybe it's less intuitive, I should say. A bank's deposits are their liabilities because those deposits are owed to other people. You take your deposits to a bank 
for something you might call safekeeping. You believe that a bank is a safe place to keep your money. However, uh, you also want a bank to keep your money because you like to do transactions. You have to do transactions, whether you do them electronically or you still write checks. You need somebody to process those transactions and your bank performs that function, utilizing a Federal Reserve system that clears funds electronically overnight, every night. So so you, you use a bank for safekeeping your money, for accomplishing transactions, and then Thirdly, you might you might now now that interest rates are rising or 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 prior to the last five years, you you might have relied on your bank for some kind of yield, some sort of interest, some sort of return on investment. So your bank paid you an interest rate for keeping money with them in either a checking account, money market account, certificate of deposit, or some other instrument. Nowadays, banks might have other forms of depository accounts. They might even offer in a related company, if they have a holding company, they might even offer personal financial advising or wealth management or trust services. But primarily a bank takes in deposits. Those are their liabilities and, and they make loans and they, what they try to do is earn a spread an interest rate spread on the loans over, over deposits. So for example, if the bank's average cost of deposits is say 2%, then they'd want to earn, they'd need to earn because they have to pay people and they have, you know, electric bills to pay and, and shareholders expect who expect a return they they need to earn about an average of about 6% on their loans. And so that their net interest margin, that the difference in those two is about 4%. Now that would make a bank in, in this age that we're in, a top for performing bank. Some banks do a little better than that, not a lot. And and some do a little worse than that, and that's still awfully good. And and some do considerably worse than that. I haven't really tracked Silicon Valley Bank over the years, but they are an interesting study. I did a little bit of research just to see uh, who this bank is. They were started, actually formally started, and started trading on NASDAQ in 1987. So they started a few years before that. They got a charter. Uh, They're based in California, as you know. And then they were hit hard. You'll remember the tech bubble of the late 90s. They lost about 50% of the value, their share value, their stock value in 2001. Since that time, they have grown very aggressively. They just, among other things, they expanded to Israel and China. They acquired a bank or started a bank, I'm not sure which, in Boston, clear across the country. It's interesting, 6% of their loans are in the wine industry, kind of helping them relate to that part of California that they're in. So, Again, they had $209 billion in total assets at the end of last year, at the end of 2022, $175 billion in deposits. Now, what that means to us, um, it, you know, if you think about it, if most of those assets are loans, and if a significant number of depositors said, hey, we'd like to have our cash, well, that, that cash is, and, and this is true of every bank, almost every bank, every successful one, that cash is out working and earning money for the bank 
in the form of loans. Banks have all kinds of ratio requirements. I mentioned safety and soundness earlier. This bank had at least three regulators, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and some state party, the Office of Financial Regulation is what it's called in Florida. And and they look at ratios and I mean and th- and this is somewhat sophisticated, but if you know accounting, it's not it's not that hard. I mean, it's it's they they look at certain asset quality ratios. They examine a bank in several contexts. Uh, among them, uh, asset quality, which means loan quality, adequacy of reserves, uh, management quality, and and so on. And and so just to keep it simple, this bank made lots of loans in the technology and healthcare industries. In fact, they funded loans either directly or indirectly to companies that were doing IPOs. Those are initial public offerings. These are young companies that banked with this particular Silicon Valley bank. Now, they were among the 20 largest banks, but they if you look at their website and and read about them on other websites, they had a little bit of a special appeal. They claimed to kind of be that down-home bank, that bank that connected with individuals, that, that we'll, we'll bank you personally. We, we will we'll give you good service. And they catered to this tech industry in Silicon Valley, which is one of the reasons they grew so rapidly. So they, they claimed to have special tech startup expertise in their promotional materials. Now, the difference between this bank and your bank, most likely, is that they they offered these special services and they were able to they develop over the years, and I believe they probably really developed some expertise and kind of guessing, kind of knowing, making educated guesses, which is all you do when you make a loan on these startup companies, these IPOs, these initial public offering companies, they, they were able to kind of guess as to which ones would be successful and which ones would fail. And they were apparently pretty good at it. I mean, just that's not sell them short. I heard, I heard some folks calling them the CEO and others idiots uh, today, this morning on uh, business news, uh, business news uh, cable channel. And, and, you know, Okay, well, they they blew it, and and they're they're now insolvent. Their shareholders have stock shares worth virtually nothing, and 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 it's it's a spilled milk story, and it's sad. But I think these people had some expertise. I think they were pretty good at what they did. The mistake they made, or or the the place where they left themselves vulnerable, let's say it that way, is that they focused on this sector. Now. All of their loans weren't in this sector. I have encountered them in the work I do with Christian schools, believe it or not. And so they, they had a diversified portfolio, but they, they had an industry concentration, we'll call it. Now, examiners get worked up over that because they, they know that they, they, they don't really want, like, for example, in Florida, if you're a banker in Florida and you do commercial banking, then you're, you're going to be loaning money that is secured by real estate. The Florida commercial real estate market is going to impact your portfolio. As Florida real estate goes, so goes your loan portfolio in a lot of ways. Now, there are ways to hedge and protect your risk and you know don't, don't advance so much money on projects. Make sure the owners have some equity in each project. There's some things you can do to make that safe that 
are just in the weeds and too complex for our discussion here today. But Florida is a real estate market. Well, Silicon Valley Bank focused on these tech and healthcare IPOs. And so they had an industry concentration risk. This benefited them because they grew inside of that top 20 bank category in the United States. They grew to over 200 billion in assets, as I mentioned. And, and they, but they didn't do things like everybody else does it. They didn't look at collateral, cash flow, credit, and other metrics in their underwriting criteria, quite the way all other banks do. They looked at expertise, business plans, credibility of the people with the ideas, probability of success, those kinds of things. Not that they didn't look at these other things. I'm sure these companies had financials before they became an IPO, before they did an initial public offering. But this bank had a little bit of a funky way because of this industry. And they were really well regarded in the in in across tech the the tech industry at large, tech and healthcare specifically. So they loaned money to young companies, is what it amounts to, that wouldn't have passed traditional underwriting standards. But their track record was apparently very good. So I could see how regulators might have not looked the other way, but allowed them. There's there's a no matter what anybody tells you, and good regulators will tell you this, they're human. And there's a subjective element to their analysis. When you when you judge the quality of a loan portfolio, there's some real specific there's math you can do <laughs> that that tells you the quality of that loan portfolio. But there's also a subjective element. And so it's easy to see how with this bank's track record and focus, the regulators allowed them maybe to engage in some loans that wouldn't have passed traditional credit underwriting criteria. At the end of the day, with every bank, their, their quality, their survival, their solvency depends on a number of factors, but primary among them is the quality of their loan portfolio. If they do everything else right, but don't manage risk in their loan portfolio well, then they will not succeed. Now, regulators won't let them usually go to the wall like this one did. But here's what happened with, with Silicon Valley Bank, just to say it plainly, and then we're going to pivot and talk about what this means to us and what we can do. Silicon Valley Bank was an FDI-insured, insured, Fed-regulated bank, but they pride themselves on not being traditional, focusing on the tech sector. Well, since the COVID year, 2020, the tech industry started struggling and has struggled. You might've noticed that a lot of the layoffs that have occurred in this country have occurred in the tech industry. And so, so tech companies started struggling during the COVID era and have continued to struggle and and so what happened is, and now we're, now we're in a rising rate environment, an interest rate environment, that is. The Federal Reserve has raised the discount rate from virtually zero or a quarter point to roughly 5%. You know that. You've watched this happen. You know that that is designed because it's all over the media to, to counter inflation, which means devaluation of the dollar. And, and that shows up, that manifests as rising prices. 
So you know that we're in a rising interest rate environment. If you have a bond portfolio of any kind, you know that when that happens, then your existing bonds, treasuries, any kind of bond that is priced at a lower interest rate becomes worth less. So think about this perfect storm that occurred and it occurred very quickly. These tech companies are getting pounded financially. They need cash. They start withdrawing funds. This bank is struggling already with rising interest rates. Their asset liability management has placed them some of their liquidity that they now have to access in bonds. They now must quickly sell those bonds. And they lost $1.8 billion, with a B, dollars in so doing. And that made that bank instantly last week insolvent. Now, that was probably a process that started a couple of weeks ago, but they were bailing water so badly that the FDIC, imagine this, the, the, the feds had to come in and take that bank over last Friday morning. This will be about four weeks old when you hear it. That's how fresh this is to me. So, They didn't do the thing that you've seen them do before that you observed in 2008, 9, and 10 when they they showed up on Friday night and they already had a suitor. No, no, the FDIC took this bank over in receivership, formed an entity to run this bank. And then over this past weekend, there was an announcement that the FDIC is going to guarantee every depositor not just those with balances below $250,000. President Biden did a speech yesterday assuring everyone that all is well and that the taxpayer wouldn't fit the bill, which isn't altogether accurate. The FDIC has about $100 billion in reserves, and they're about to spend a bunch of it bailing out this bank. Two other banks have failed. Signature Bank has failed. Credit Suisse is right on on death's door. And I, I don't know, you know, by the time this is this episode is released, perhaps we'll have more clarity. But I don't know about cascading and ripple effects, but I know that this is not good at all. The Fed next week, and you'll know this too, is going to make an announcement about interest rates. Uh, this week, we've received information on inflation being lower, 6%, which is not a reliable reliable number in 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 my opinion. But in any case, here we are. This bank has failed. A couple of them have failed. A couple of banks have been just absolutely just lost a ton of value in the in the market. Stock trading on Credit Suisse was halted yesterday uh, for a period uh, while they continue to decline. I'm not sure who else is is going to be in that in that chain. That chain of of decline. There's sometimes a cascading that can happen and and. Sadly, we only we, we can only figure this out. You know, we don't have as, as quickly as information travels, reliable information still takes a little bit of time. And the reaction to these things takes some time. So if there is cascading among other banks, um, I, I looked up some of the other banks that have correspondent relationships with with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and saw that they were in decline even as early as last Friday. I looked at that and when when this was all announced. So 
So there, there will be some implications from this, but, but I want to talk to you really. And the purpose in telling you this story is not to scare you or get you depressed, but I've had contact from several friends, not surprisingly, over the last couple of days asking me, what can I do to protect myself? Because over the weekend, the story was, well, the FDIC is only going to protect depositors up to $250,000. You know about that insurance limit. It was raised from $100,000 to $250,000 in 2008, I believe it was. It was during that that financial collapse in 2008, 9, and 10. So what is a person to do? How can you get protection? Well, let, let me try to be helpful. I, I First of all, no depositor has ever ever taken a loss since the FDIC was formed going back to 1933. I think it was 1933. No depositor has ever taken a single dollar of loss, which is an incredible track record. Now, banks pay insurance premiums to the FDIC. I would imagine those are about to go up. I would imagine your bankers, your bank people are really struggling right now with Oh my goodness, what do we do? Do we do we call some loans? Do we lend more carefully? Do we change interest rates? Do we change our policies? This is a, a really volatile time for them. But there there are some things that that you can do and that they'll help you do this, actually. If you have a lot of money and you say, well, wait a minute, I'm unprotected. I never cared about FDIC insurance before, but now I do. What can I do? Well, let me, let me speak to you this way. If you're a, a couple, then you can, and I don't give personal financial advice. I'm telling you about the banking industry. I'm not your financial advisor. If you need a financial advisor, go to one. If you're savvy enough to do this on your own, then, then great. I'm going to talk to you about how FDIC insurance works. If you're a couple, you together can put your social security numbers together. In other words, have a joint account and you can get, ask your banker how to do this. You can get $500,000 in total FDIC insurance for one joint account. Then you can open an account in each of your individual names separately and get another 250 each. And so now you have a million dollars of FDIC insurance. If you have a child or multiple children, you can add their, you can do various combinations. I'm going to say it that way to make it simple of their name with your name, even if they're minors and get more FDIC insurance with every combination. So let's say you have one child, you, you a wife can, can have a joint account with the child and the husband can have a joint account with a child. And then all three can have a joint account. All of those combinations get you another $250,000 each of FDIC insurance. Then there's another way to, to do this, and that is you can go to TD Ameritrade, uh, who's not a sponsor of this podcast, but I do do some business with them, or I think Schwab owns them now, or E-Trade or, or Vanguard or some other of, of those companies, the online brokerage types, and they will have something called brokered CDs, brokered certificate of deposits. Now you need to ask and you need to look at their policies. I'm not endorsing all of those companies, but if they do it the right way, you're able to then invest in CDs at banks all over the country. And so you could have, if you had two and a half million dollars and it was just you, 
you could go to a bunch of those banks. You could go to 10 of those banks, individual banks, separate banks, and have everything fully FDIC insured at $250,000 per bank. So what I'm telling you is not circumvention of a system. It's set up that way intentionally. This is a, an everybody knows it. Uh, it's not, you're not cheating the FDIC here. This is the way the system is set up and you should take advantage of it if you care about FDIC insurance. And I, I, I don't think there's going to be a cascading, but I will say this, if you knew, I, I glossed over ratios, bank ratios, if you knew how those work, if you knew what bank liquidity requirements were, if you understood fractional reserve banking, if you understood loan loss reserves, if you understood loan to deposit ratios, then you would realize that if some percentage, usually about 30 or 40, of a bank's deposit customers, as represented by dollars, 30 or 40%, needed to access their money in one week, then most banks would not be in a position from a liquidity standpoint to be able to give them their cash. That's just how fractional reserve banking works. Now, what concerns me, if I'm candid, first of all, God is on the throne. Christians, take a deep breath, be relieved. You can't serve God in money in the Sermon on the Mount. You've read this. We've talked about it here. God is faithful. God is sovereign. We are in great hands. All is well. However, we've got to be smart about this and realize that the thing that's in my head anyway, I'll just tell you, is the toilet paper panic of 2020 when COVID happened and we had these lockdowns. If our society is that is, is so fragile that, that we panic and hoard toilet paper during COVID, and I realized that panic didn't last long and all is well and all of that. We all started using the expression supply chain and, oh my goodness, there, there, were, there were empty supermarket shelves for the longest time. We might still have that with some products. Well, if, if we're that tender, that emotional, that reactive, then I do worry a little bit that we could cause a panic you know, trust in the banking system is is deserved. These regulators are good. Bank management, by and large, is smart and they're making good decisions. But if the consumer, if the depositor panicked, we could just have a mess on our hands. And the fact that the, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and all, all regulators did such a good job, in my opinion, of handling the, the meltdown, the Great Recession of 2008-9-10, that gives me some assurance that this isn't going to be calamitous. I will look very foolish if we've had a series of cascading events in the interim period between this recording and the release of this episode, but I'm willing to guess that that, that won't occur. So, so we have a couple of, of things for us to focus on. Uh, one is, one is on, on ensuring that everything is insured by the FDIC and, and doing the moving money around thing. Uh, that that's one possibility. The other is diversify your banking relationships. You could, you can go to two or three banks and you get a fresh start with FDIC insurance at each bank. So two fifty per tax ID number. 
And there are some limits to that and you need to talk to the bankers to figure it out. I'm not giving you advice. And then a third way is 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 these brokered CDs through an online brokerage of some kind. You can you can do that and kind of centralize everything. And then then I think there there's another thing that that we can learn that is that risk and return go hand in hand. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank teaches us something that is powerful. You can't have it both ways. And all bankers know this. You can't grow this fast, dominate this much, be this focused on one industry or a couple of industries and sub-industries. You can't go expanding across the world recklessly. I'm not, I'm not suggesting they didn't do it well. They might have probably did, but you put it all together and you have aggressive growth and tremendous returns to shareholders in stock value. And you can't have the kind of safety and soundness that you, the depositor want to have, or even that you, the shareholder expect to have in a bank when, when you're running that hard, that fast, and your risk is that concentrated. One of the things I tell my students often, and it, it just sounds so simple, but it's profound, is that risk and return correlate. If you're getting high returns, and just know this about every investment, if you're getting high above market returns, you are, by definition, taking above market risk. Those brother-in-law deals aren't real. They, they all have risk. If I, I can't tell you how many times I've had, had people say, I have found this one thing that does not have a lot of risk, but has tremendous return. No, you have not. That does not exist. There's a concept called ten staffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Ten staffel. <laughs> that sounds really juvenile and simple. It's not. It's profound. And there's a continuum of investment risks. Even burying money in a coffee can in your backyard or putting it under your mattress between your mattress and your box springs has risk. Your house could burn down. You could forget where you buried it. There is a risk continuum that starts with liquid cash and ends with, I don't know, going to Vegas or Atlantic City. And in between are things like CDs and bank deposits and, and, and bonds and Bonds that aren't rated quite as well, where yields start to go up, and then bonds that are junk bonds that have very high yields, and then stocks, and and then you have crypto along the way, and real estate investing, and I should have said that the other way, real estate investing, and then crypto, and 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 all kinds of other derivatives and other other investments. Just know that if the reward is high, if the yield is high, so is the risk. And it's worth just pausing for a moment and getting some expertise. I can't give you personal financial advice and won't and have no interest in being in that business. But I can tell you about the banking industry and how this works. All this finger pointing and the, you know, the, the, the CEO was an idiot and regulators fell asleep. I, you know, okay, uh, there's they're spilled milk. Everybody's got, everybody is to, to blame to some degree. But I will say it this way. Every, everybody looks foolish when something falls apart like this. Everyone in bankruptcy court looks like they didn't know what they were doing. 
that just know that there are some basic principles that this bank violated. And they got caught with this perfect storm, this industry failure in the tech industry. And yes, they were too concentrated. I hope this is helpful to you. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about something else uh, uh, that is that is business and economy related. I'm going to I'm going to give some counsel to a very specific group of people, and I think you'll find this helpful and enlightening. So I hope you'll uh, come back and listen uh, next week. Please subscribe to Relentless Truth uh, wherever you get your podcast. Send along a note. Uh, so many of you do, and it's so encouraging to me. I appreciate you, this audience. Thank you for being here. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And I would be glad to uh, correspond with you at uh, john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Our website is johnwarrenmedia.com. I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.